This is Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Come along as we take conversations that matter to you into the high alpine. Good morning, Mr. Stephen Hamilton. Well, it's afternoon now. It's 1230. Oh, yeah, that's right. Sorry. Oh, goodness. Okay. <laughs> Long days. Yeah. Um, so uh, what a cool episode. Uh, we welcome Jay Allen Smith to the show. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's never a dull moment whenever he talks, whenever whenever he's always performing, right? So and, oh, and yeah. no exception on this one. It's a great podcast with him. So, Oh, yeah. I've wanted to put this one together for, God, at least... 30, 40 episodes now and finally work together. And as you say, he's always on quite the character and yeah, just a great time, some great stories. And I'm sure this will be a fun listen for everybody. Yeah, this is, uh, this has definitely been uh, uh, one of my top, uh, my favorite episodes for sure. And, uh, and it, it, the big thing for me is uh, Alan is very, um, he's, he's uh, flamboyant. He's out there. He's, you know, he's always on, but he's also a humble guy, right? And he's, mm-hmm. he cares about the same thing we do. Um, and he's super driven about conservation, um, super driven about uh, giving back. So, um, yeah, I've always respected him, you know, mo- first and foremost for his conservation ethic, uh, to be honest. That was always been where I've tipped my hat to him. And then, of course, kick butt hunter, man. He's killed everything oh. everywhere, right? So, Oh, um, totally. And I, I love what he says in there. He's, he's not a collector of hunts or animals he's a collector of experiences and that's mm-hmm. truly what it's all about right and i think he's got something what 355 different species or something as of like 2015 when he won the conklin award so who knows where he's at now yeah no it's uh super cool super cool to talk to him um and i love his outlook on different things and you know mentorship and you know i, I never really thought about it you know and i think of jay allen i don't think of mentorship and him taking guys and gals out getting them um, into the hunting environment and that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. But he talks about how important that is. So yeah, just a great message from him today. And um, anyway, uh, some housekeeping stuff before we jump onto the episode, we won't um, dwell on it too much, but Hey, we're what one month until the opener for, for sheep. Yep. This, this time in a month, people will be heading North or actually flying in and, or hiking in and, and sitting down and waiting for a couple of days for the opener. So how, how fast does time really go, right? Like, <laughs> it's it's crazy yeah. when you look at it. It's like, what? Here we are again. So, yeah, are you going amazing. on a sheep hunt this year? No, you're going in I October, am. September. Uh, September, September right? yeah. Doing right. a September uh, trip. And, yeah, really excited about it. Looking forward to it. And, um, yeah, I wouldn't miss it for the world. Just another opportunity to get out there and, and see see them in their landscape, man. That's If I see a sheep, uh, it's as good as harvesting one. Well, okay, maybe not quite as good. <laughs> i'll take your word for it yeah no it's pretty epic so um just for our our listeners um if you're not a member we'd love to have you join the society Uh, we've got a really cool membership drive on we've talked about it before that's still going it's only on for um another month and uh, six weeks or something like that so uh, we're giving away a sturgeon fishing trip on the fraser river um uh, wood wheat is our sponsor on that love to have you join as a member uh, Alan talks lots about giving back on this episode. So this is, you know, this is something that Steve and I take seriously. It's something that Jay Allen Smith takes seriously. And, you know, if we don't start getting involved, we don't start giving back. There's not going to be, we're not going to be able to do what we love. So, um, this is kind of our plea to you. Hey, get involved. 
uh, buy a membership. If it doesn't work for you with the society, maybe for whatever reason, mm-hmm. you know, you have an interest elsewhere, then buy one with your local fishing game club, support a national organization. I don't care which one. We'd love to have you. We want a stronger voice for wild sheep in the province. Um, you know, our parent organization, Wild Sheep Foundation, they're doing great work, um, you know, but just get involved And in it. You know, maybe it's not sheep, maybe it's goats or elk or moose or whatever the case, but just mm-hmm. get involved. Yeah. One membership, one day a year. Hell, you can even start getting involved by simply sending a letter to your MLA and saying, hey, uh, the way fish and wildlife and habitat is being managed in British Columbia isn't acceptable to me and you need to do more. Uh, we, we see all these other organizations that are on the uh, the other side of the spectrum will say to us, they're right out there front and center yelling and screaming from the hilltops about how bad hunting is. And we saw it what, five years ago now with the uh, the grizzly hunt, how we lost it because we, we weren't loud enough. We weren't vocal enough and we weren't engaging our MLAs and Anybody who knows me knows I have no problem engaging elected officials and every single one of them I have talked to has said the same thing, no matter what side of the house they're on, if they are in government or if the opposition or if they're the, uh, the ones independent or sitting in the middle, every single one of them has said, if all hunters would come together and send emails in a united voice, we would win. We mm-hmm. just need to do it. So we've got the numbers. We just, as, as Kyle said, get involved, start small, get a membership somewhere, engage your MLA. Hell, you need, you need help uh, reaching out. Feel free to fire an email to communications at wildsheepsociety.com and ask. We'll, we'll help you out. We'll, we'll tell you who your MLA is and tell you some talking points. So okay. off my box a little bit there, I can continue and continue. Yeah, well said, Steve. No, I uh, have to agree with everything you just stated there. And uh, yeah, so uh, with that, we're off to episode 80 with Mr. J. Allen Smith. Enjoy the listen. Thanks for listening to Talk to Sheep. Across Canada and throughout the world, if you come across a campfire in the woods, on a mountaintop, or next to a river, you'll find warm company and friendly people gathered around. Regardless of your lifestyle or place you call home, we invite you to learn more about what it means to be a hunter in the modern era. If you love the outdoors, care about where your food comes from, and are concerned for the future of wildlife and the environments that they need to survive, pull up a seat. We have a story to tell. Welcome to our campfire. Mr. J. Allen Smith, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. And this is going to work out good because I don't know if you guys know, but I can speak fluent Canadian. Uh, you got one up on us then yeah (laughs) yeah well so yeah you were born and raised prince albert i think wasn't it yep beautiful prince albert and then lived in the yukon for a while and then down in uh, vancouver and uh actually all my family's still in canada except you know my mom and dad and brothers right on you're down in washington state there now i believe right yep in uh the uh wrong side of the state in as far as being a big game hunter but it works out you know yeah, yeah, absolutely, and certainly the uh, the right side of the uh, the border, the international border, when it comes to paying taxes. So, yes, thank you. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, awesome. So, hey, I look behind you there, and I see a pretty impressive wall. It looks like uh, you maybe have done some mountain hunting in your time, or what's the deal with that? Yeah, you know, it's one of those vices that you pick up, and uh, you know, it's always been 
I would say my biggest passion has been getting up in the mountains and certainly the biggest challenge in the hunting world is, you know, the mountain species, um, North American sheep specifically are for, for sure one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult animals to get. So, you know, it's been a great challenge and love doing it. And uh, the only problem you run into is the longer you do it, the harder it gets, I'm finding. So, uh, you know, as many old guys that uh, sheep hunt say, you know, do it while you're young. Problem is usually you don't have any money when you're young to be able to go and do it, but uh, save up and go while you're young. Yeah, well, well said. Uh, so I guess, did you grow up, um, like, uh, as we know, you're a Saskatchewan boy at birth, like, did you grow up hunting whitetails or, or where did, where did this love for the mountains come from? We actually moved to the States when I was fairly young, so I didn't get in any hunting in Canada. Uh, my dad took us out in the outdoors a lot, fishing and camping and things like that. He wasn't a big game hunter. Uh, my mom had grown up on a farm in Saskatchewan, so, you know, they were used to, you know, uh, killing to eat. And uh, we had a neighbor that got my brother and I into bird hunting when we were uh, probably 13-ish. And, uh, you know, loved it at first try and he would take us over and my folks are real supportive of it. My dad just grew up in Vancouver. So, you know, he never had the chance to do it, but, uh, that guy got us into it. And then as soon as I got a car at, let's say 16, uh, and a hunting dog, we would drive from the Seattle side of Washington to the Eastern side where all of our pheasant and ducks and quail are. And we'd go over there all the time. And that's what started the, you know, best and worst vice I have. <laughs> Certainly probably one of the most expensive anyway. So. Yeah. And there's yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. So you kind of hunted all over the world now and, um, you know, you've, you've had an opportunity and you're, you're well known for your international hunts and certainly your North American hunts as well and mountain hunting, you know, what kind of stands out as, you know, if you think back over your quote hunting career, what stands out as sort of that pinnacle hunt for you? You know, a, a wilderness sheep hunt, you know, whether that's in Alberta, in the Yukon, you know, Northern BC, they're for sure the greatest adventures you can do. You know, you do the horseback in, then the climbing from there. Uh, you know, you're out with what you can carry on your back. I was blessed with living in Alaska for quite a few years, and we were able to go and go doll sheep hunting, you know, on our own without a guide, which was, you know, about as cool as it gets. And it was early in my career, so I didn't know squat about you know, sheep hunting or judging or anything like that. And I didn't have a lot of sense about, you know, getting as close as possible with the plane. In most of Alaska, it's very difficult, you know, to get in with super cubs and that, unless you're with an outfitter that's got an area. But as an independent trying to get out there in the Brooks Range and stuff, you know, the guy would take you as close as you could. And then, you know, me and a buddy would just put our packs on and start walking and start glassing, you know, climb to the first mountain and see if you could see anything and go to the next one and keep going. And we would actually get in there so remote that our policy was we'd only take one sheep between the two of us each year because we couldn't carry two out. So it was great. Real adventure. Yeah. yeah no, that's the real deal, right? That's, uh, 
yeah, the DIY uh, sheep hunting in Alaska doesn't get any more badass than that for sure. So very yeah, cool. Yeah, it was a blast and uh, really enjoyed our time up there. And then you had all the other animals too that you could hunt up there. And that's really what got me into big game hunting everywhere was once I started, you know, getting the chance to go and do all the hunting in Alaska, then you wanted to, you know, go on to other things and, uh, you know, and one thing led to another and, well, <laughs> Maybe I should go to Russia and see what they got <laughs> sheep. And, you know, then they got those stupid goats there. And what is it? Tajikistan or Karjakistan or whatever that is. And um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you've kind of, you've kind of ticked the box on a lot of stuff. And I know you're a big supporter of GSCO and um, you know, there's not too many awards that you've won in the, the hunting world. And then, I mean, like, all of them. You, you've, you've been a recipient of the Conklin Award, so many different awards over the years. And, you know, with the, the different achievements through GSCO, you've gotten so many awards there, Wild Sheep. So you've been to Africa, done the big five. So what, what is a guy like you, what do you wake up in the morning and go, what am I gonna, what am I gonna go do now? Like, where do you go from here? Is there still stuff that you wanna hunt that you haven't hunted? Or have you ticked every single box that you kind of wanted to do? You know, right now, every once in a while, a new species will come up. But to be honest with you, I'm really not into the whole species thing uh, anymore. And, uh, you know, I like to think that I'm a collector of experiences, not a collector of uh, animals, of species, goes hand in hand. But, you know, if it wasn't for being a collector, I would never have gone to Liberia. I would never have gone to Yakutia, Russia, you know, uh, all the you know, all the stands, uh, why would you go to Pakistan unless you wanted to, you know, kill the animals that are there? So it's been a great run, but to be honest with you now, I'm mainly, I mean, I still sheep hunt as much as I can, you know, if I can get drawn or, you know, find a permit somewhere. Uh, I was just down in uh, Mexico, a uh, desert bighorn hunting this past spring. And uh, so that was great. And I still like doing that. I go to Africa still every year and kill Cape Buffalo. Uh, it's kind of a passion for those of you that have watched my YouTube channel. I think probably <laughs> half our stuff is Cape Buffalo. I know I should be more diverse. Don't send me any hate mail. But, <laughs> you know, it is pretty damn fun, you know, chasing Cape Buffalo. So um, I like doing that. And I'm really into bird hunting, you know, duck hunting and upland birds and that, and spend a lot of time doing that as well. So, uh, but, you know, I'm not hunting, you know, my good years, I used to hunt about 250 days a year and I'm down to about 120, you know, these days. So I'm kind of slacking off. <laughs> so on that note, you know, with the, with your stuff, you know, a lot of your stuff is videoed now and, and, you know, through, um, through your different channels and show and stuff like that. Does that change it for you? Like, does it change it? Like from when you were like that guy back in flying into the Brooks range and hoofing it on foot and dragging one sheep out between the two of you, um, obviously you didn't have a bunch of camera gear and all that kind of stuff. So does that change how you hunt and does it make it more enjoyable, less enjoyable? You know, how does that work for you? Is it change things? I would say it's just a different experience and uh, it's for sure different. You know, you have people around you all the time. You're on stage every moment from the time you get up in the morning till you go to bed because you never know when that clip's going to happen. Um, it keeps you a lot sober, by the way, you know, you can't be on camera, you know, drink, 
you know, <laughs> say three o'clock in the afternoon, not that anyone would do that, of course, in Africa, but, uh, it, uh, yeah, it's different. Uh, I was lucky in that I, when it came to making the show that I had already been hunting a lot. So when we started doing the show 10 years ago, um, I didn't have any pressure. You know, it wasn't like, hey, if we don't get this shot on this animal, that it's the end of the world. Uh, some of the species that we did get on camera were uh, a first for me. But, uh, you know, like a Cape Buffalo honey, if it's not a good setup, it's okay. You know, we can find another one. Um, or if you're deer hunting and you pass one up or the cameraman's not ready or whatever, you know, those things happen. But uh, I don't, I can't really say that it was a lot of pressure. You know, it wasn't something that I ever didn't not like doing. It was more that it became a job. And that is a different ball game to be in the hunting industry and have it be a job with all the sponsorships and the promotions and things like that. So you went from just going hunting and having fun to now it's a business and, um, and it's a rough business. It's, it's, uh, it's its own ball game. So Anybody thinking of doing it, you might want to think. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that a lot from people I know that are in the industry. They say that uh, it's exactly that. It becomes a job and you're expected to perform to a certain level. And it's not about getting out and having fun. And you got to make sure the shot is perfect and the lighting is great. I, I did a turkey hunt in April of this year. First time tried to get it on film and saw firsthand just how difficult that was in two days. So I, I can't imagine doing doing it as a, a career. So yeah, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. And the travel involved, you know, especially for what we were doing with international stuff is mainly what we've done on the show. And I'm lucky. I've the best cameraman on the face of the earth, Jeff Parker, Jeff, if you're listening, you're the man, you know, you're the man. Thank you for everything you've done. You know, you stood there with charging Buffalo and didn't flinch, um, you know, hoping and praying that I killed the damn thing. And <laughs> climbed mountains all over the world. I mean, the guy's just one of those great tough guys, never complains, you know, shows up on time. Just, you know, I'm blessed to have a guy like that because they're not all like that. And I've had a couple of those before him that were that way. But, uh, you know, when you have a cameraman that breaks down and has a nervous breakdown and starts crying in Liberia and, you know, doesn't want to leave his tent, you know, that makes for a long hunt. That sounds like a typical sheep hunt for me, but uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's not 110 degrees and raining. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Alan, like for for yourself, you know, you're you you know, you don't need you don't need this isn't your day job, right? So this isn't what pays your bills. So it, it, for you, is it is it the challenge? Is it the excitement of getting it? And this because you you know we know you're a performer. You're on the stage. You're always performing. You're performing for us today. You know, you're a, you know, you're a musician, you're a book writer, a storyteller. Is it about telling the story or is it a, you know, what drives you to, to do this sort of stuff? Well, the original, <laughs> I don't know if I should say, I'm going to say it anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> what do I have to lose now? Um, <laughs> the original reason why we did it literally uh, started the show was we were sitting around in a camp. And there was three or four of us and we were all complaining about outdoor TV and that show after show after show was about shooting a deer over a pile of corn from a tree stand. 
Not that there's anything wrong with that. Done it lots, not, no moral, not anything wrong with that. But I don't need to watch 39 shows on Saturday that are the same exact show. So when we were complaining about it, one of the guys said, well, maybe Mr. Smarty Pants, you ought to just do one on your own and see you know, if you can do one better. So I said, well, maybe I will. And uh, that dare turned into getting with Tom Miranda, uh, the great bow hunter and who has tons of shows and a friend of mine. And he helped start the production and get things organized. And um, I happened to be lucky that I had a camera along when I uh, first show we ever filmed was a cashmere marker. So I got that edited and then I'd done a Suleiman marker as well. So we kind of started at a pinnacle of great species and great uh, location. You know, what more exotic place can you have than, you know, hunting with the Taliban and, uh, you know, in Pakistan and all the, you know, wild culture and, you know, great people there. But uh, so anyhow, it just kind of evolved from there. And then because we were doing different locations than most people are doing, I think that that really helped. And one other thing too, was so many people take themselves excessively seriously on other shows whose names will not be mentioned. Um, and I like to watch shows that are entertaining and that are going to be something different that, you know, makes you want to watch. And we kind of went with that shtick that, you know, we're going to throw some music in, we're going to throw some skits in, um, they might be hokey, but we're going to break it up and have something besides just the same old thing that you see. And so that format worked for us really well. And now that we've switched to YouTube and streaming on Amazon, uh, it's been great because now we have an international audience. You know, we have fans from all over the world that can watch instead of before when we were on network TV. You know, you're really restricted. As an example, like Canadians couldn't get the channels. So... Uh, now anybody can watch the shows when they want. And so, and the sponsorship model followed with us. So it was, it's been great. Yeah. Right on. Very cool. Um, so let's talk a little bit, I guess, um, about, um, you know, if you were, there's a lot of young people that want to get into international hunting. They want to go and, you know, lots of experiences and there's a lot, there's quite a few barriers, uh, uh, expenses, obviously one of the biggest ones, but there's others too. Um, so I guess for somebody that's aspiring to sort of get kick off their international hunting, you know, maybe they've killed a few sheep in North America or all of them or for that matter, and they want to go do something else. How does somebody kind of get into that and how kind of you steer them in that direction to sort of get involved in, in that overseas hunting? Get with a outfitter, you know, booking agent and pick species that are in your budget. Don't, because sooner or later, you're going to want them all, <laughs> speaking from experience. So, you know, a, uh, you know, if you want to go to Asia, there's reasonably priced hunts. You know, the chamois hunts are reasonably priced, you know, reasonable being a relative term. But you don't have to go on a $100,000 hunt. There's a lot, you know, in the 10 to $15,000 category that a guy can go on and some cheaper than that as well. But look at the opportunity to go and get the most bang for your buck that you can while you're building up your resources for other trips. Um, that's my 
my biggest advice, unless you just have in your heart set that, hey, you want to go shoot a Marco Polo. And that's the first thing you want to go do, which I would discourage anybody going to Asia from doing that as your first hunt anyhow, because it can be a very difficult hunt because of altitude and long range shooting. And there's some hanky panky that goes on over there with the, you know, animals and recovery and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, Turkey, great country to go hunting in. You got basil ibex, you got chamois, you got wild boar, you got all kinds of great stuff there. Uh, uh, some sheep, you got the stags there. Uh, reasonably priced place to go. Uh, guy can go do, uh, of course, the European animals, uh, not as exotic as going to Europe and that. And some of the Russian hunts too are not that badly priced. And if you're young and fit, and you can go do any of those uh, Eastern Russian hunts, you know, your Koryaks and your Yakutias and things like that, you know, bang for your buck. Yeah, they're going up in price every day, but those are very difficult hunts. Those are North American hunts, you know, sheep hunts. Those are, there's no easy way. You got to climb and you got to rough it and, you know, they're, they're a good hunt. So I think that'd be the place to start is to start looking around at what you've got in your budget and what, what are you capable of doing? And you're going to learn about all the games that happen in Asia and Russia. It's always something, you know, the plane doesn't show up when it's supposed to, the guy's not there to meet you, you know, you got to bribe some official to get your, you know, gun through. Uh, well, not that you'd ever do that. I, I guess I should backtrack on that one. No <laughs> one would ever pay a bribe internationally. Um, but you know, the lousy food, the jet lag, all the things that go along with international travel. You want to start out with something that, you know, you can do and don't burn a huge amount of money on something like that and, and be disappointed because you weren't really prepared for it. Hmm. And I guess the other side of it too is kind of choosing an outfitter because I know talking to Daryl Hosker, our, our friend there, he's always, you know, really cautious with us when we're trying to source hunts and stuff like that. Cause there are, you know, different high fence hunts or, you know, all kinds of different stuff that it on the surface, it looks pretty normal. And then, you know, but so how does a guy go about that? I guess, you know, that circle, that community of international hunters, you kind of almost need some references to, to know where and what, what you can hunt. Right. It's the, besides giving back to conservation, it's the reason to go to the conventions. It's the reason to belong to your local chapters, whether that's Safari Club, whether that's Grand Slam, you know, Wild Sheep, any of the great organizations are out there, Dallas, all of them. And the local chapter level, especially. I think it's real important to be involved locally because you meet guys that you've never met before. I'll give you an example. You know, I live in the Seattle area outside of Seattle. But we have a ton of big game hunters here, which you think, you know, not Seattle, left wing capital of the world. No, there's a bunch. And when you go to these events and you meet these people, you get to talk to them about, hey, where have you been? What have you been doing? Do you recommend this guy? What did you get while you were there? How much did you pay? You know, you learn a lot of inside info that you wouldn't pick up by just going and sitting across the desk from the outfitter that may or may not be telling you the full story. I, I rarely go on a hunt unless it's an exploratory you know, first time to Liberia type of a hunt or something like that, or first person to go to a place that I don't have a recommendation from somebody whose judgment I trust. 
you know, Daryl, as an example, you know, we talk all the time about, hey, have you ever hunted with this guy? And he'll go, no, the guy's a flea bag. You know, I got burned and I did this, this, and this. But here's a guy that I went with that I got something. Okay, great. You know, that's the communication that's real important. Like anything, yeah. there are good guys and bad guys out there. Um, most of them are good, I do have to say. Right. But, uh, and the other thing is, is that a guy may be good this year, but three or four years from now, he loses his area. He's had problems, you know, make sure you're talking to somebody that's been there lately. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Lots, lots of pitfalls with that international stuff. Hey, eh? and so yeah, get, get your feet wet and then go for your big stuff. Don't waste your money on something big and then realize, oh, you're making, make some mistakes on a cheaper hunt and then figure your way forward. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Learn how to travel. Right. Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay. So let's, let's talk about you. When you think back, um, is there, is there one particular hunt that stands out anything in like one specifically, um, share a story with us. That's that that's etched in your mind forever. Let's see. Um, <laughs> probably, no I mean, the, the worst hunt I was ever on was polar bear hunting just because it's a, it's a miserable hunt. Uh, you know, you're out on the ice. Uh, it's, it's dangerous, uh, which, but you know, you, the locals may or may not be prepared. Mine weren't, I was going, you know, years and years ago and I was able to actually get my back in the U S in those days. But, um, it was, it's just a lousy hunt, you know, from start to finish. I've never wanted to get out of a place so bad in my life. Luckily the, the one and only bear that we saw was a good one because he was going to die. And, uh, <laughs> but uh, that was probably the most miserable. You know, when you, when you look at the equipment that you're using and you realize that your garage has 10 times better stuff sitting in it that I could have brought had they told me that we were going to be at 35 below, you know, and be staying in a pup tent with a Coleman stove for a heater and that's it. And it only gets turned on when they're cooking the frozen meat and canned beans that they brought, you know, three square meals a day. So that kind of a thing, you know, it, it just, that was pretty miserable, you know, getting charged by Cape Buffalo is not much fun. Uh, that one's, you know, Buffalo stick out in your mind for that reason. I've had a couple of those. I did have one Brown bear charge, which was, uh, kind of, uh, how would you put it? bit of a life-changing experience where uh, we had seen two big bears, one bigger than the other, of course, and the bear had worked its way back up the beach while the big one that we were looking at was still laying down. And the bear just, for some reason, it saw us and it got up and started huffing and here it came. And I've been around bears because I lived in Alaska. I actually spent a lot of time in Kodiak for many, many years. So I've been around bears a lot. And maybe I'd lost respect for them when I look back on it, that I should not have been, you know, calling his mother's names and stuff like that when he was <laughs> puffing and puffing at us, you know, they'll make a, you know, and they stomp the ground when they get mad, but I've seen them doing it on rivers and stuff before when you're catching salmon next to them and things like that, or when they steal your deer and you just let them take it. But this one, for some reason, he decided that he was coming and, he charged and uh, the guide was yelling, shoot. And I kept, I still kept thinking, yeah, he's going to stop. 
you know, he'll come to 15 yards and pull up and make a big scene and rip some stuff up and leave. Never hit, never slowed down. So we both shot instantaneously at eight yards and center punched him with three seventy fives, and he rolled over and kept coming. And I put one in his eyeball and, uh, that killed him. But, uh, that's probably one I I'll remember forever. <laughs> was that, was that one on video? No, it's not, unfortunately, but the oh, whole okay. story is in, uh, one of my books, I think it's in uh, Adventures in Wild Places, if I remember right. Okay, I remember seeing a video like that about 10 years ago on the internet. Very similar. I'm like, oh, I wonder if that's the same one. Yeah, no, that was before we were filming, unfortunately, because it, you know, I mean, if you're going to have one charge, it would have been great to have it on camera. But um, no, it was. And then, of course, now you got to, it was a decent bear. It turned out to be a, you know, just missed book. So it was a decent bear, thank God. But now you got to carry him out of there. And then, you know, the post-traumatic stress syndrome that they talk about, it was funny that me and the guide got back to the cabin that we were staying in and we couldn't go to sleep. So we got up and we drank a bottle of booze and that didn't work. (laughs) You know, you were just so jacked up and it finally sunk in you know, how close of a call it was that, uh, it was, yeah, it was pretty good. Adventure. That's cra- That's crazy. You know, you get, you know, bears are so unpredictable. You get some that no interest whatsoever. You could walk by them every day, 10 feet away. They don't care. And then others that they're going to kill you no matter what. Right? And, and they're so, you never know which one you're getting. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's wacky. I don't know. Huh? Yeah. Like I say, I think that I've been around them so much that I just never thought it would happen. You know, you can yell at them and walk towards them and make a scene and they usually, you know, will back up or, you know, let a round go, which sometimes works and sometimes does on a Kodiak. It doesn't seem to do much. You know, they've been heard shots before, but. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. Um, so I guess that's, that's probably your scariest experience hunting um so that obviously is a close call with an animal anything uh you know getting getting in trouble like uh cliffed out or anything like that where you think you're gonna die because most of my experiences when i think i I was ever gonna die in the mountains it was always doing stupid shit like you know you know (laughs) messing around on a mountain or whatever it wasn't you know we've had a few close calls with bears nothing like that but uh but yeah, there's been a few times where I've been a little, uh, things were sketchy, but it was because of my, my own doings, not because of an animal. <laughs> yeah. I had one, uh, we were in, uh, Russia on the Kamchatka peninsula doing the Kamchatka bighorn. And, uh, it just had be- terrible weather, you know, where you lost the first half of the hunt, just sitting in the tent fog right down on the deck. It was just nothing you could do. So finally the weather clears. Well, where, and of course, no interpreter in the mountains. You're just on your own trying to get by with the guides because the interpreter is a city guy who's, you know, in the last place in town waiting for you to come back. So, you know, you do a lot of hand signals and drawings and put rocks on the ground and, you know, move them around and do all that kind of stuff. And I finally realized after two days of hiking that the sheep that they had seen that they were planning on us killing, they were gone. So now we just started freelancing and we took an overnight, you know, our pack with a sleeping bag in, in case we had to overnight, but we just had to start walking to find them. And of course there, there's no airplanes to spot them. There's no pre-scouting. They kind of have an idea where they are. Um, 
some areas they use helicopters or they used to, especially in the old days to know where they were. But nowadays there's very little helicopter spotting because of the expense. Um, but anyhow, so we took off. Well, we got up onto this area where we'd seen a sheep and there was kind of this sheer cliff. And we knew that the sheep from where we'd been before was up on this bench and the way the wind was blowing, if I went around the backside and I told the, these two Russians, you know, they wanted to just climb up and jump shoot him or something. I don't know what the plan was, but it wasn't going to work out. So I'm blessed with not being afraid of heights. So I just figured, well, I'll just climb up this cliff. No problem. I'll sneak up over the top. He'll be a hundred yards away. I'll whack him and they can wait for me. So I got up there and anybody who's a mountain hunter, I'm sure has been into this position before where going up is always easier than coming down when you're using your hands and your feet and you've got your gun slung over your back. So I got up to a point where I couldn't go any further. There was a gap of about, you know, three feet between me and the next step. And there was a little chasm in the rock that was there. And it, I don't know how far down it was, but it was a long ways. It was long enough that, you know, you weren't gonna, you know, come out of it with just a broken leg. So I, uh, you have no choice, right? And so I said, well, I'm gonna have to go down. Well, I started to come down and now I can't come down because I can't see the footholds below where I'm at. So I went back up and I just figured, well, here we go. And my safety plan was, if I fall, at least I'll be in the chasm in the rock and I can at least pin myself somehow in there. So I won't at least fall all the way to the bottom. So that was my safety net, you know, Al Smith 101 plan. And uh, it, luckily I jumped across and grabbed a hold of the other side. And long story short, I got the sheep, but uh, that was uh, one of those you know, young and dumb things that you think back and go, it's just for a sheep. You know, like listen to the guides. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's telltale when the guides are saying, don't do it. It's probably good advice. Eh? Yeah. And they uh, live there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, okay. Let's, can we talk a little bit about, um, well, let's, let's talk about, uh, well, I was doing some research for the podcast and I found you on Spotify. I found your, your album on Spotify. So do we want to talk music or we don't want to talk books? Which one are we going to talk about first? Uh, let's talk music. Why not? Sure. Sure. I see your guitar there. Did you want to do a song for us or what, what's, uh, uh, it's a little early in the day and I haven't been drinking yet. So, uh, <laughs> okay. oh yeah, there's my, uh, my hummingbird. Yeah. Uh, I have a studio down here. There's a bunch of stuff over there, but, uh, I've been really blessed. I've got a brother, uh, Monty Smith, who's on, uh, all the songs with me. He's got a recording studio. And he's a pretty famous dude in the music industry. He's played with uh, Tower of Power and Johnny Winter and Ricky Nelson. And, you know, wow, they're all dead. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyhow, uh, you know, he's, he's a very talented musician and he's got a first class studio here in the Northwest. So it's really lucky for me that I get to go into his studio and we record songs and we did all the music for the shows. So anything you hear on there, even some of the sound effects and that, which was really fun to do, you know, get in there and try and come up with some new, you know, background stuff for the show. Um, 
So that was good. And we've always been in bands, like in college and high school. And it's the one thing that uh, Monty's not a big game hunter. If you've watched uh, a couple of our Uganda shows, Monty's been in there with us. And he's one of the funniest human beings on the face of the earth. So it's always great to have him there for, you know, coming up with script ideas and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, it's, it's been fun. And, you know, the problem with uh, music, like so many things, there's one-tenth of one percent of musicians that can make a living at it. And the rest, mm -hmm. you know, you can't make squat. Um, it's like being an artist or, I guess, you know, anything that's creative. It's very difficult to make money. So luckily, I got some common sense and got a job besides but we still play and always have and like performing and, but the live venues are getting tough nowadays, you know, especially after COVID to, yeah, find places to play in that, but uh, still writing, mm -hmm. working on one right now. Uh, it has to do with, uh, I like women that wear a wig. So uh, it should be a pretty good video. <laughs> okay. I can only imagine. <laughs> oh goodness. Uh, excellent. So when, when are we expecting that? When will that be out? Uh, we're going into the studio on it in uh, two weeks, around the okay. 26th, I think it is, with the studio book. So for the recording, and then uh, that'll take a couple of days. And then we've got to do the, uh, the video, but uh, I'm trying to keep it low budget. You know, I don't want to end up going with, you know, supermodels that are wearing wigs and all that. And of course, we have to keep it PG rated because that's the way we roll. Uh, so that cuts out a lot of great material, but <laughs> we'll see. And I'm not sure who's going to be wearing the wigs, you know. So. Uh, I can only imagine. <laughs> uh, I don't want to imagine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you've seen the Safari rap video, uh, and if you haven't, go on there and see that. Uh, there's some cross-dressing involved in that, and there may be some in this next video too, so... <laughs> Awesome. But I guess that's okay nowadays. So, well, maybe this would be a great venue. We could have something at Sheep Week, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do you well, identify this week at Sheep Week? Yeah. Well, actually, uh, we're looking. To, I'm one of the uh, on the committee for the Life Member Breakfast. And that, actually, that would be to have you perform that at uh, Life Member Breakfast. I bet you we'd get pretty good numbers if we had you doing that for us. Yeah. Do I have to wear a wig or not? Well, I don't know. It's your video, so we're, we're not going to decide. So, <laughs> uh, uh, excellent. Um, okay, let's talk about the book. So, um, what are the motivations for? The, I, I I know a little bit of the backstory, but how did you get into the writing side of things? I know you got so many stories, but tell us about that evolution and then how that turned into a conservation story. I originally, started out doing magazine articles, and I encourage everybody who's listening that has any passion at all about writing, take the time, put your words down. You may think you suck at it, but with practice, you'll get better. Uh, of course, nowadays with computers, it's way easier because of spell check and thesaurus that's in there and sentence structure and things like that. So you can, you can write a good story. And I started doing them for magazines, uh, you know, different types of trips and things like that. And when I, when I got paid the first time for an article, it was like, you got to be kidding me. You know, because it's like anything else that you do artistically that, you know, you do it because you love doing it. 
And all of a sudden, you know, I get a check for 2000 bucks for a, you know, magazine article for national magazine. I'm like, Holy crap. You know, it's not going to pay for, you know, sheep hunts, but it's a start, but even just doing it for your local chapters, magazines, sending them into the organizations with photos, you know, we really need more material out there, you know, put them out on your Facebook page or your Instagram account or whatever, but people want to see them. I think, uh, and they don't have to be long, just a recap or anything like that, but certainly go out and do them. And for me, it became a deal where I had enough material after magazine articles for a couple of years that I could, and I was getting more and more uh, prolific at it, mainly because the more I traveled, the more time I had on airplanes with nothing to do for hours. And, you know, you go overseas, you got two eight hour trips back to back. So I would take a small little traveling laptop with me still do to this day. And, you know, rather than watch some movie, I just write and put headphones on and away you go, you know, and you can have a lot of time with no interruptions. So other than, you know, would you like another cocktail, Mr. Smith? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that's how I started doing it. And once I got into it, the, the first one, Close Calls and Hunting Adventures, you don't expect to sell many anyhow, because you don't have any following. I didn't have a show at the time. It's my first book I'd ever done. And I thought, well, if I'm going to go to all this work and I'm going to get this thing published and do it all, why not do it for a good cause? And so I just made a policy that from all the hunting books that I've did from that point on, all the profits from it, excuse me, all the revenue that we get from it, not the profit, uh, we, it all goes to conservation. So it goes to the various organizations. Uh, each one of them has received funding from it. And uh, so it's just a good good reason to, you know, work hard at it and to see other people contributing, you know, at 35 bucks a shot, but Hey, it's a starter and uh, you know, money's for a good cause. It's not just for me to go and kill more poor, innocent, you know, deer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. I want to jump into that bit in a uh, shortly about the conservation side, but let's talk about the books. Let's talk about what you got out there, where people can get them, uh, why they should buy them. Um, well, we know why they should buy them. You just talked about the conservation side of it, but let's just talk a little about about your your books and and where people can grab them if they're interested. Yeah, the hunting books uh, you can get them at jallensmith.com, or you can get them through uh, Amazon. Uh, all the uh, most of the organizations all sell them as well. We do do book signings at all the uh, conventions and uh, the hunting books are all based on a series of short stories. So they'll be anywhere from 2000 to 3000 words and, and have photos in them as well. And uh, I think there's uh, six hunting books now. Uh, the latest one is the chase and the adventure that has the great painting by John Banovich, the artist on the cover. Uh, who's a friend of mine and did a beautiful work and he's got original drawings inside all the books. And it's a, you know, I think one of the biggest compliments I ever got about my hunting books, they have lots of photos in them was that my hunting books are a lot like playboy magazine in that the photos are a lot better than the writing. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. But, uh, yeah. yeah. So there's, they're for, and there's stories in there, everything from sheep hunting to uh, brown bears to, you know, uh, hunting around the world, a uh, little bit of everything. Uh, obviously some Cape Buffalo in there as well, but I try to mix them up. So it's just not one book about one species. And that's been a successful format for us. Awesome. So uh, anything new in the works? You got your new song coming out. You're going to record. You got a new book on the go. Yep. I'm working on a new book, which is a Buffalo uh, book uh, specifically about that. After I just said that all my books are <laughs> multiple stories, but this one's going to be uh, all about Cape Buffalo, everything from calibers to stories to, uh, you know, reasons to, uh, go buffalo hunting uh reason to not go buffalo buffalo hunting things like that so lots of uh, action in it and then uh i also have three novels and i'm i've been plugging away at a fourth there's a series of novels the first one is called it's not a game anymore and uh the novels are unique in that for me anyhow because they're kind of outside my normal realm my my business and my audience is the hunting world the one thing that's odd about novels is that they reach a bigger audience and they sell way better than hunting books uh, just because of the uh, population that would read a novel versus a book about killing elephants. So um, I do have a publisher that, you know, I'm supposed to be committing to and I have not because I'm not far enough along on it, but the novels are based on um, action hero who, uh, you know, is one of us. And, uh, you know, opens in the Central African Republic when he's on a safari and there's some kidnapping and his young wife gets taken and I'll leave it at that. But it's lots of adventure. And, uh, you know, they've they've done really well. I'm very proud of them and blessed to have a great audience for them. Excellent. So you're working on a new one in that novel series. Yep. On the fourth yeah. one. But it's going slower, to be honest with you, than the, than the, than the hunting one. Novels are hard to write. There, right. There's a lot to them. Yeah. Um, now with that, was this, was the novel a corollary of these short stories? So is it just an outcome of that? You know, we've seen the recent one that, you know, Jack Carr's, you know, Jack's got his series out now. Um, I know Jim Shockey's working on a novel series as well. Um, I haven't heard last time I talked to Jim, he was, he was working with the publisher. I'm not sure where he's at with that now, but so was that, you know, how does that, how that evolution come about, I guess. So. By the way, speaking of Jack, if any of you listeners have not read his books, go online, get them. Incredible. And of course, the first one's being turned into a movie. Uh, but great work. I mean, I can't say enough about his work. And he's a hunter and outdoorsman, besides being, you know, great military hero as well. But uh, the, the uh, first novel evolved when I was in a camp in the middle of the Central African Republic. And while I was there, one of their revolutions happened, probably the last big one that they had. So we were stuck there. We couldn't get out of the country. Uh, you know, a bunch of other things happened, which is a fairly long story, but we had to actually have a small plane come and pick us up from the Catholic rescue mission and fly us into, uh, you know, Cameroon eventually just to get out of the country because we couldn't go back through because they were having this big war started again in Bangui in the capital. So while we were there, uh, there was a guy that the outfitters had all hired that was a Russian mercenary 
that was using an ultralight to shoot poachers and the army was coming in from Sudan and poaching elephants and bushmeat and the camp had been raided by uh, some of the Janjaweed guys. So while I'm there and I'm working on another hunting book, I'm going, wait a minute, I've got half the material, if not more for a novel <laughs> just from what happened in the last two weeks. So, you know, you throw a beautiful woman in there and uh, some characters that may, that I had to change their names because some people that when they read them said, you know, that guy, that's the bad guy that you're talking about reminds me a lot of so-and-so I go, wow, amazing. But <laughs> put that together. So I put a big disclaimer in there that, you know, if you think you're one of the guys in here, you're not. Wink, wink. <laughs> you know, enough yeah. characters in the hunting industry that all you had to do is change the names. But when you're describing <laughs> somebody, I just, you know, take somebody I knew and go, yeah, that's his name used to be Dennis. And now it's Ahmed. <laughs> uh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. cool. Uh, adventure oh. ones you want to you know get them for uh if you're looking for something to take on a trip uh and then they're they're in a series so get them in order but or get all three while you're on there what the hell get them all <laughs> yeah awesome um okay let's talk about a little bit here before we wrap up just about you know your conservation ethic um ellen you, you've always been a huge supporter of these different conservation organizations um, that's my first experience with you is, I think it was a wild sheep running into you down there. Um, you've, you've always been such a, uh, a stalwart of supporting conservation organizations. Not everybody is a Jay Allen Smith. So what's the pitch? How can we get people more involved? How can we get people to be, uh, to care? And, and, and a guy like you, um, you know, you, you don't have to worry. You're always going to be able to hunt somewhere in the world. Um, you're the last guy that should be standing up for a while or needs not should be, but needs to stand up for wildlife. But there you are. You're, you're the guy that's giving. And we talk about time, talent, and treasure. You're not just the guy that's given, you know, it's not just a paycheck for you. You're up, up on the stage, you're giving back, you're volunteering your time. So um, why is that so, so important to you? And I guess give us a bit of a pitch on why others should get involved. The reality is that if you do this long enough, you see stuff come and go. The things that we used to be able to do, the things that we can still do. Yes, there are some new opportunities that are coming up as well. But what we have right now in America and Canada is we have a model that works so well, right? We have more of every species than we've ever had. And that model being used internationally is working also wherever it can be used. Tanzania, Zimbabwe, you know, uh, Tajikistan, uh, Russia, they have these sustainable use conservation programs. And if we don't support them as individuals and we're not involved, it's going to go away. You can't buy, you know, look at the bunny huggers, you know, the World Bank and the World Wildlife Fund. Their method is to go in and just buy off locals or contribute a whole bunch of money to some area and then walk away and think that it's all just going to work. And if you, anybody has spent over any time overseas, that's not what happens between corruption and everything else. So hunters being in the field is the biggest thing we can do to support local economies because it's hands-on. We're there. We're participating. 
we're contributing locally at the local level, whether that's through providing jobs, whether that's through tips, whether that's through providing meat to villages, things like that. And that applies in the stands also in Russia. That, you know, uh, subsistence hunting is a big thing and you've got to control that to some point, right? There's, it's one thing about, about eating local meat, but the markor is the best conservation story of all time. These guys used to shoot markors just for something to eat. You know, to them, you know, one man's endangered species is another man's breakfast. You know, they, you just don't care because there's supposedly lots of them. And of course, the ones you're shooting are the easy ones, which are the females and the, and the little ones taste better than an old randy male. So by us going in there and putting a price tag on these various animals, it's worked. But I think as individuals, you know, it's one thing to talk about international or the big, big picture. What's more important is our day-to-day -day lives of being hunters and fishermen and outdoorsmen in our local economies and in our local uh, hunting and uh, public hunting areas and things like that, that we're out there, we're utilizing the resources, we're putting our best foot forward. You know, don't be that son of a bitch that's riding around in a pickup truck, throwing empty beer cans out the window on a logging road. You know what I mean? I, it, it drives you insane when you get up there and you see these guys, and they're really not hunters, right? They're just drunks that are up there making us all look bad. Be the guy that's out there that's, you know, you're ethical hunter, you're doing the best you can, you're getting your kids out, you're getting your neighbors out. Expand other people's horizons and get them out in the field as well. Women, maybe your wife doesn't wanna go, but kids do, or the neighbor's kids do, or somebody at work wants to go, but, you know, women and, uh, Girls are one of our biggest growing uh, areas of hunters these days. And it's important that they're out there as well. Give somebody else that's not in your immediate family an opportunity to go hunting. That's giving back right there. Because I can't tell you how many people I meet, you know, living in the Seattle area, you know, uh, we have private, private land and that and hunting opportunities. And we have, of course, the whole forest uh, of the Cascade Mountains. It's basically uh, all public hunting. So it's possible to go. But how does somebody learn about it? How do they, besides going and getting their hunter safety education certificate and going and buying a rifle, now where do I go? Um, how do I find a deer? You know, how do I go bear hunting? How do I go rabbit hunting? You know, they don't know anything. Yeah, you might, you're not going to take them to your honey hole, but you can sure take them out and spend some time and get them involved. But that's the only way we're going to grow our numbers is by getting more and more people involved because as our numbers are going to shrink, if we only keep to our immediate families and you're growing up in the city, more and more people, we don't have the same, you know, draw that we had from the farming communities of small towns. We've got to be proactive in doing that. So, and I just think it's important to give back you know, the biggest thing we can give is our time. You know, we always need money for these programs, but people volunteering, be involved in local things. Take a night and go to your local uh, statewide or countywide uh, uh, government uh, meeting, right? This week, they're deciding on what the limits are going to be on ducks or what the fishing limits are, anything like that. If you ever go to one, 
there's two hunters or fishermen and there's 39 bunny huggers. And then you got some government bureaucrats that they really don't care and nobody's there. So, you know, shame on us. We wonder why we lose bear hunting in Washington state in the spring. Now, nobody shows up, you know, now it has, that's a bad example because we actually had hundreds of people that showed up for it and we still lost it on the last go round. But you know what I'm saying is that that kind of participation is what we really need. We need to have our people in there too. So I just think that, you know, getting involved and by the way, being involved in the conservation organizations and the hunting organizations, what's funner than going to a convention? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I go to them all Mm -hmm. and it's and work at almost all of them but it's the best work there is. I mean, what's funner than seeing all these people, meeting new people, all like-minded, you know, what a blast. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. and that, that's a great point about getting involved. Right. And I know Steve's got his mic off. He doesn't turn it off very often, but this is something he, him and I are both passionate about. It's like the world's run by people that show up. Right. And it's like, you know, I feel, I find, you know, and I'll call our community out on this. I love what we do. I love who we are but we need more involvement. People need to realize there's some things that we're going to lose that we can lose. And if we're not proactive, if we don't show up, if we don't talk to the government, if we don't talk to our elected officials, we're in trouble. So anyway, you kind of got me going there. Yeah. Yeah. Too, too many, too many hunters say that, well, I bought a tag, I bought a license. I've given back. No, it takes more than that. Right. And we're, we're seeing it up here with the wolf hunt. We saw it with the grizzly hunt, right? They're going to outnumber us. They're going to get out, uh, outspeak us. And we, we can't just sit back and say, well, we, we bought our tags, we bought our licenses, we're conservationists. And Kyle knows I'll continue to go on that for an hour, so you better stop me there. So. Well, and, <laughs> and on the other side of the coin, too, I hear people go, well, you know, that's not science-based. Not. It, science-based is true, and it's our cannon fodder to use, but that's not what changes people's minds. It's mm-hmm. public in front of them. But also, one other thing while we're on that, if I can, to get on my podium again. <laughs> this hunter against hunter stuff mm-hmm. is horse power. Mm-hmm. Yep. All you guys that think that bow hunting is the best thing in the world and all rifle hunters are assholes or, or, you know, the outside the fence guys hate the inside the fence guys. The duck hunters don't like the pheasant hunters, you know, deer hunters don't like sheep. I mean, get over it. We're all in it. If you're a turkey hunter and that's all you do, that's great and more power to you. But the same land that we're all going to save for turkey hunting is also going to have rabbits. Mm-hmm. It's going to have deer. If it's a bear area, it's going to have bears. It's going to have elk. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's a big picture. Get, we got to get over this nickel and diamond. I've been at these meetings where, you know, the fly fishermen are voting against <laughs> guys that are salmon fishing that use bait yeah what like why you know i mean we're all in it together the idea is to have more fish to come up the damn river so we can all catch them if you want to fly fish great if you want to hunt with a bow great if you want to hunt with a crossbow and it's legal whatever you want to do mm-hmm. but you know i that part drives me crazy and and yes. again we're not powerful enough as a group let alone to be in splinter groups yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, you see it all the time when when somebody like yourself, for example, will post uh, a, a a kudu, and everybody in North America jumps on them. Well, why are you doing that? You're a trophy hunter, and they don't they don't 
think of the economic value and the food value and everything that uh, that goes into it. And yeah, it's same team, same team. I don't care how you hunt. You do it legally. You do it ethically. I'm going to back you every time. We need to do more of that. And hunting and fishing and being in the outdoors is what we all get to do after we work our butt off all week. And it's supposed to be fun. So let's not get too carried away with our holier than thou, you know, mm. philosophies. This is fun. This is what we do. It, that's what it's about. And if you're taking it too seriously and you got a chip on your shoulder, you know. Yeah. Take it all said. Well, yeah, well said. Okay. So one more, I got to ask you one thing I meant to ask earlier. What, what's caliber now? I know you're, I know you've got many, but if you're out on a mountain hunt for an ungulate, say a sheep, goat, whatever the case may be, what's your go-to caliber today? I know you've used hundreds over the years and you're always using, using the latest and greatest seven mil. Okay, cool. Seven I was curious. Bag, uh, I'm actually uh, a three caliber guy. That's it. I use okay. a seven mil. Uh, I use, which, you know, here, let me get some hate mail going. It's the <laughs> greatest caliber ever made and it will outshoot any other caliber on the face of the earth. There you go. <laughs> that meter, <no. laughs> uh, and I was a 375. Uh, I used to shoot an H and H all the time. And, uh, now I've been shooting a 375 Ruger, uh, okay. you know, big stuff. And then I shoot a 577 for, you know, uh, really big stuff. So cool. I just, I've never been a caliber guy, you know, I'm not, I'm semi kidding about the seven millimeter, but really not. Uh, but I'm not a switch guns just to switch and see what this one does. I'm kind of like a, I like to have a gun that I know and I know where it shoots and what it's going to do and, you know, quality bullets and everything will roll over. So awesome. Cool. And I like, I like consistent calibers that you can buy. Uh, hey, if you're a reloader and you don't care, great. Mm -hmm. You know, do a 329 HPC or whatever they are and, you know, great. Go for it. Not knocking it. But uh, I just don't have time to do any of that stuff. And I grab a box of shells that I know works and I'm gone. Awesome. Yeah, I, I had a 7 STW, which was super cool. I loved it. But I couldn't get ammo. I wasn't, I'm like you, I don't have the time or intuition to, uh, inclination to reload. And just, uh, I ended up, yeah, not, I don't use it anymore because of that, but, uh, it was a great little rifle. So, and I don't think it matters too much, uh, as long as it's got enough horsepower for what you're hunting. Uh, seven will kill anything. Uh, but, you know, the big thing is practice. You know, you got to mm -hmm. go out and shoot. You got to be super comfortable mm -hmm. with your gun, get your trigger lightened up, you know, so you're not, flinching or yanking it um just know it you know practice with it dry just i i see so many guys will show up in an african camp you know here they're going on the safari of a lifetime and they've got a new gun and they've sighted it in and that's it and mm -hmm. if it's a big caliber they're probably going to be afraid of it you know i just finished an article for the new book about buffalo talking about the 416 and great round in the right hands, but a 416, all of them, I don't care if it's a Rigby or whatever, it kicks like a mule. Mm -hmm. And I've killed a few Buffalo with them and I'm used to heavy calibers just out of habit, but don't go anywhere with a 416 until you've shot 
you know, a 375 or a 338, you know, you, you want to work your way up because the last thing you want to do is be flinching when you're shooting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially at a critical moment where, where uh, you got to keep Buffalo bearing down on you. And yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You're on the hunt of a lifetime on a, you know, $50,000 hunt and you're, and you yank it two feet. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Excellent. Well, Alan, I can't thank you enough for making this work. Um, I know you're a busy, busy guy. So just thank you so much for taking the time and, and just thanks for what you do for conservation, what you do for our hunt space and what you do for hunters. We appreciate everything. Thanks for all you guys are doing and keep up the good work. And uh, I look forward to seeing you at the shows. Like for Likewise, looking forward to it.